Well, good morning, Calvary International Church. How are you today? First service was a little quiet, so I'm hoping that you feel comfortable in saying amen from time to time. I'm used to that. (laughs) You know, I know everybody's a little nervous today, and and I know that we're here candidating, and I know that there's people that are going to be taking notes of how he said this and what he said and and style and all that, and and I understand that, and believe me, Claudia and I are a little nervous as well, but uh, I I want you to understand that here in just a moment when I start the message, we're here to, to hear God's word doesn't matter if I'm up here or, or Thomas or whoever God leads to be up here to speak. This is God's word. And so we're going to be focusing on God's word in Philippians chapter 2 today. And you've already heard that read. But um, so, so just real, let's all relax together and let's hear God's word together. Okay. It, it's a great joy for Claudia and I to be here. We, we are very excited. And I'm not really going to share my testimony now because later in the Q&A time we'll have an opportunity to share a little bit more of that. But we have been here for a little over a week. We got here uh, and went straight on down to Cubatón because uh, Claudia's mom uh, lives in Cubatón. And um, her brother was there from Palmas as well. So we got to spend a week with her family. And I would ask that you continue to pray for my mother-in-law, Claudia's mom. She has been struggling with eyesight, and um, so just pray for them and uh, pray for her eyesight in that time. So you heard we, we grew up in Brazil. Um, Claudia, Claudia's Brasileira. She's Sanchista. Um, I, I'm almost Belém. I was eight months old when we got to Brazil, so I almost uh, was born here. My sister was born here. Uh, Brazil is such a part of our, our life and our family. Even though we've lived and ministered 30 years now in Arizona and in the States, Brazil has always still been part of who we are. And, and we are excited about this church and what God's doing here at Calvary and about the, the possibility of God joining us with you in serving him here in the great city of Sao Paulo. And so uh, I, just, I just pray again that we will know God's will, that we will understand how he's guiding every step of the way so that we will follow his will. I want to tell you that uh, I was going to preach Matthew chapter 16, but when I was watching online just a few weeks ago, Thomas stole my thunder and took my message. And I'm like, oh, Claudia, he's preaching the message I was preparing. And so I'm like, whoa, man, I've got to go back to the drawing board and figure out what God is saying. And so uh, as I begin to pray about it again, what do I preach? And by the way, I did contact Thomas and said, give me your messages until I get there. So I don't, we don't do this again, you know. And um, so I I came across my favorite passage in the whole Bible is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. I I think there's so much there for us to learn about who Jesus is and how we are to respond to who Jesus is. And so I wanted to go ahead and just share from my heart today, from God's Word, the summary of this passage I say summary because there's so much you could preach about. You could do a whole series on just this passage. But the idea today is the mind of Christ. We're going to talk about, first of all, and mostly understanding the mind of Christ. And that's there in verses 6 through 11. And then to finish up, we need to understand not just the understanding of the mind of Christ, but how to live the mind of Christ or to have the same attitude or mindset that Christ Jesus had as well 
And so we're going to look at that as well. This is an interesting thing. Many scholars think that these verses were actually a hymn that was sung in the early church. And if you look at these beautiful words, and if you look at it in your Bible, many of the Bibles are indented into a, a, a different format that could have been a song that they sung to the Lord. And I would encourage you, go memorize these verses and in your own way, sing it back to the Lord. So you would come to know him better in that way. This, this passage talks a lot about Jesus Christ because he is central to our faith. And so as we look at this passage today, we're going to ask, who is Jesus? I mean, who is this Jesus anyway? Where did he come from? Why did he come to earth? What difference does it make? But as we talk about who this Jesus is, I want you to personalize it today because I want you to ask the question, who is Jesus Christ to me? Because that's what's going to make all the difference in your life. Who is Jesus Christ to me. Thankfully, we don't have to wonder who Jesus Christ is because the Bible from cover to cover tells us who God is and who Jesus Christ is. And this passage gives us a beautiful summary of his life. Some scholars call this, uh, this passage a Christology, the study of Christ. Nearly all the truths of Jesus are found in these verses. His eternal preexistence as God, his voluntary taking on of human flesh, his coming to earth to be a servant, his humiliating death on a cross, and then his exaltation back up to heaven. It's all here, right here in this passage. And so we want to look at that today. When I was thinking of this passage, I, I thought of what Christ did for us. I've never been to China, but I understand there's a very, um, very famous place called the Forbidden City in, in, in China. And the, and the Forbidden City was the place where the emperor isolated himself. You see, the emperor, even though he was the, the, the king of the land, he didn't want to be around anybody. And so he built up these walls, and on the outer side of these walls were the normal people. And after the first set of walls, then came all the government people, and they could live in there and be in there. And then there was another inner wall, and in that inner wall, there was his closest advisors. And then beyond that, there was another wall, and in that wall was where the emperor and his family lived. You see, he wanted to live totally isolated from the people that he was king of. I, I want you to understand today that Jesus Christ did the exact opposite of this emperor. Jesus did not build up walls between him and I, us. He tore those down. He did not protect himself. Listen to this. Jesus made himself vulnerable by becoming a human, by becoming a slave, by becoming one of us. And here in this passage, we get to understand a little bit more of the mind of Christ. So, so here's the first part of it. We're going to skip chapter five, I mean verse 5 and come back to that at the end. Let's start with verse 6. As we begin to understand the, the mind of Christ, we need to understand who he was. Listen to verse 6 again. Though he was God, he did not think equality with God as something to cling to or grasp to or hold on to. 
Paul here in this passage is stressing the eternal pre-existence of Jesus as God. Before Jesus came to earth, he existed in heaven as God. This is Paul's version of what John said in John chapter 1, verse 1. Do you remember that verse? John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was, you remember it? With God, and the Word was God. That's the way John said it. So Paul says it just a little bit differently here in verse 6, and he says, though he was God, he didn't think equality with God is something to hold on to, but he emptied himself. So who is this Jesus? Well, the Bible teaches, there's no doubt, that he was and is God. This month we're praying for Muslims all around the world who need to come to know Jesus Christ. They need to know who he is. Because, you know, the Muslims believe in Jesus Christ, but you know what they believe about him? That he was a prophet. That he was a good teacher. And the world will tell you many, many different things about Jesus Christ. He's a prophet. He's a teacher. He's a miracle man. All these things. But you know that Jesus never claimed to be any of those things. Jesus claimed to be the Son of God. He claimed to be God himself. This is what we would call the doctrine of the Trinity, which is a very important doctrine that we base our Christianity on, that God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are one. And we believe that, and we see that in this passage. Even in Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, we begin, when, when God says, let us make man in our image, he's setting the tone to understand the Trinity. And this verse just picks it back up and says, yes, Jesus was God. He was part of the Trinity in heaven. Look what it says. He existed in the form of God. He existed in the form or in appearance in his original state, Jesus was God. That word form means the real essence of something. You want to get to know someone, you need to get to know the real essence of who they are. In other words, whatever makes God God, Jesus possessed that same essence. Because he was God. Whatever you can say about God, you can say about Jesus as well. He is 100% God and nothing less. We say that God is omniscient. Jesus is also. We say that God is omnipotent. So is Jesus. We say that, that God is eternal and he is holy. So is Jesus. All those terminologies, all those characteristics are the essence of God and also the essence of Jesus Christ. It says there that he is equal with God. And because of that, that makes this next phrase even that more important and more remarkable. Listen to the next phrase. He did not regard equality with God something to be grasped. He did not think that equality was God, with God was something to be held on to or to cling to or, or to stay with. Jesus did not hold on to his godly form. He didn't try to hold on to his glory in heaven. He, he let all that go and came to earth. To me, that's another proof of the Trinity. Because the reality is, only God has the power to become man. You and I, mankind today, we try to do all kinds of things to be God, don't we? But we fail every time. Only God has the power to become man, and so therefore he... His son, Jesus Christ, left heaven to come to earth. He was still God, still part of the Trinity, but he was here on earth 
as Jesus, the Son of God. This foundational truth is very important because that is a foundational truth of our Christian faith, who Jesus Christ is, who God is, the Trinity, and, and understanding all that. So we have to understand this foundational truth of who Jesus Christ truly is. So that's who he was. And then if you go on to verse 7 and 8, it begins to share with us who he became. Who was he? He was God. Who did he become? Let's read it now, 7 and 8. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born of a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on the cross. That is, those two verses right there are powerful. The word humble is there twice. To see what he did, what Christ did for us. Theologians call this the incarnation. God becoming man. Fully God, fully man. Let's look at these phrases in, in these verses. First, he made himself nothing. Some of your translations, and this is my favorite one, says he emptied himself. I love that powerful word because you, you, you think of emptying a cup of water or pouring water out. You see a, an empty cup. It says that Jesus Christ emptied himself and became a man. In ter terminology of today, is maybe we would say it this way, he became a nobody. You ever been in a conversation with someone and they kind of tried to put you down and they said, oh, you're just a nobody. Well, guess what? You're in good company because Jesus became a nobody for you. Right? Jesus emptied himself. Now, but be careful. He didn't empty himself of his deity because he was still fully God. He was still fully God as he was here on earth. He emptied himself of his privileges of being the Son of God up in heaven. He emptied himself of his royalty in heaven, sitting on the throne. He emptied himself of his riches and rights of being the Son of God, of his reputation of being the Son of God. He emptied himself of those, of those things, but he was still fully God. And he poured himself out, and he did it for us. So how did he do it? Some words come to my mind as I look at these verses here. The first thing that comes to my mind is the word self-denial. You know, that's not something we like to do a whole lot, is it? We, we don't like to deny ourselves of food. We're about to eat here in a little bit, right? We don't like to deny ourselves of watching a soccer game later this afternoon, right? Sao Paulo and uh, who's the other? Oh, Palmeiras, right? <laughs> <laughs> I cheer for neither one. <laughs> I have to say, growing up in Belém, it was Flamengo for me. So, <laughs> But we don't like to deny ourselves of, of, of the things we enjoy, right? Food and fellowship and laughter and, and enjoying life. And yet, that's what Jesus did. He denied himself of everything he had the rights to in heaven to come to earth. And listen what he says. He came... In the very nature of a servant. Not that he just denied himself, but he denied himself of heaven and became a servant. He entered humanity at the very lowest possible step he could. He didn't just come as a servant, but the lowest servant. I love the picture, if you will. He's still God, but he puts on 
On top of his godhood, he puts on humanity for us. He's still God completely, but in human likeness. That's what the verse says. He, he comes in human likeness or found in an appearance as a man. In other words, if you and I lived in Jerusalem back in that first century and we were walking down the street and Jesus was walking down the other way, we would look at him and say, oh, there's Jesus, there's a man. He really did not look any different than other mankind. That was the whole purpose because he came to become one of us. And so we would not see him as anything different. He came in human likeness and in found in appearance as a man. But it doesn't stop there. It goes even beyond. Because the next word that comes to my mind is not just self-denial, but servanthood. He became, to, became a servant. In some of your translations, it says slave. If you were to go back to the original language, that, that translation says doulos. Some of you know what that means. Doulos is the lowest of the lowest of the lowest of the lowest and keep on going lower of the slaves. The doulos was the one that got the, left, the worst of all the jobs. The doulos was the slave or the servant that nobody wanted to even look at. And the Bible says that God himself, Jesus Christ, left all of heaven, left all that top heavenly throne to become the lowest from the top rung of the ladder to the lowest rung of the ladder. That's what Jesus did for you and I. That was his servanthood. And then another word that comes to my mind in this verse here is the word sacrifice. Because not only did he deny himself, not only did he come to be a servant, but he also came as our sacrifice. And actually this goes into verse 8. So read, read, listen to me as I read to verse 8. He humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. From the top to death. From God to human to die. Man. And it says there that he was being obedient to a plan. Whose plan was that? God's plan. Would that have been your plan or my plan? If I were in God's seat, I don't know. I mean, to sacrifice, I don't have any sons, but I have a son-in-law that I love like a son. I have two grandchildren. I don't know that I would plan to send them anywhere to be sacrificed. But that was God's plan. And it says that he became obedient to this plan, not just the overall plan, not just to come to earth, not just to be a slave, but to die on the cross a criminal's death. He died an excruciating pain in pain for us. You see, many times we forget because we don't have crucifixion today. Crucifixion in the first century was a punishment so barbaric that the Romans reserved it only for the worst of criminals. And by the way, if you were a Roman citizen, you could not be crucified unless the emperor signed off on it. That's how barbaric it was. It was left for others. Jesus, self-denial, servanthood, and I would put the word total sacrifice for you and for me. That's what he did for us. Who was he? God in heaven. Who did he become? Our sacrifice. 
And then verses 9 through 11 give us who is he today. Therefore God has highly exalted him and given him the place of honor and the name above every other name. That at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It says that he highly exalted. Jesus was already exalted because he's God. You could use the word super exalted. He was highly exalted. He returns to heaven, but just a little bit different this time because he came to earth as the Son of God, but he returns to heaven as the Son of God and the Son of Man as well because he has been the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. And now we have Jesus Christ as our advocate in heaven for us. Look at these verses. God highly exalted him. Why did he highly exalt him? Because he was willing to humble himself to the point of death on the cross. I like this phrase, the name which is above every other name. What name is that? All right, let's say it together. Jesus. That is the name above every other name. There is no other name that compares. 2,022 years later, we are still talking about the name of Jesus. Even in the world today, that they don't know, people swear in the name of Jesus. Why? Because God is eternal, and so we will always be talking about Jesus. It is the name, it says here, above every other name. Every other name. And then he says that every knee will bow. That's talking about the future. One day, judgment day, every knee is going to bow voluntarily, involuntary. It doesn't matter who you are, where you're from. It doesn't matter whether you're, you're an angel, a demon, or a human. That's what it says. Heaven, earth, and under the earth. Everyone will bow their knee at the name of who? You're getting there. <laughs> and every tongue will confess. What will they confess? Jesus Christ is Lord. In the, in the days of the Romans, the Caesars thought they were Lord. The Caesars thought they were kings uh, and gods. And they liked when people said, Caesar is Lord. And then came this, this new group of people who would never say Caesar is Lord. In fact, they were willing to die because they would say Jesus is Lord. And when Caesar heard that, he would send them off and let them be killed. Are you at that point in your life today that you would be willing to die saying Jesus is Lord? You see, the only way you can do that is if he really is Lord of your life. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus is is truly Lord. He is Lord forever. He's Lord now. He's Lord then. It's a universal um, declaration of faith. But I want you to be careful to understand one thing. It's not universal salvation. Everyone will confess Jesus as Lord, but not everyone will be saved because when it comes to that judgment day, it's, it's, too, it's too far. It's too lo- uh, been too long. That's why... I would encourage you to confess it today. 
You see, this is the mind of Christ. Who he was, who he became, who he is today, that's understanding the mind of Christ. But what good is it to understand the mind of Christ if we're not going to live the mind of Christ? And so as we come back to, to verse 5, then we begin to understand what it means to live the mind of Christ. Which says, you must have the same attitude or have the same mind in you that was in Christ Jesus. And if I could summarize that in one word, it would be the word humility. He humbled himself to the point of death and death on the cross. Jesus gave us that supreme example of humility. And it's all explained in this passage. And if we want to live the mind of Christ as a disciple of Jesus, we must live a life of humility. So how do we do that? Let me just give you simply, there's a lot of things we could say about that. Let me give you three simple things. First, to live a life of, of humility, you must submit your life to Jesus Christ. You must personally enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. I grew up in a missionary home. I thought I was saved. I mean, how could I not be saved? My parents were missionaries. One night at age 10, I was in my bedroom Saturday night studying my Sunday school lesson. Can you believe it? The 10-year-old studying. That was, that was how my parents taught me. My mom comes in and, and she sees what I'm doing and she says, Brett, do you understand what you're reading? I said, I think I do. And she shared the plan of salvation. She shared what it meant that God died on the cross, that Jesus died on the cross for me. And that's when I prayed and said, Lord, I want to be a follower of you. You see, it has to be a personal decision. It can't be of your parents, your grandparents. It must be a personal submission and entering into a relationship with Jesus Christ. And here in just a few moments after the communion, we're going to have some prayer counselors out here. And if you've never prayed to receive Christ, they would be glad to pray with you on that. One of the most important things a church can do is proclaim the gospel message of Jesus Christ. First, you submit to him. Second step of humility is you surrender control. And some will be saying, hey, wait a minute, submit and surrender, it's the same thing. And yeah, I know, I get it. It's a little different. But here's what I want you to understand. If you say you're going to submit to Jesus Christ and he's going to become your savior, then he needs to have control and you need to surrender and therefore he needs to be Lord of your life as well. You, you can't really have him as savior if he's not your Lord. So they go together, but I want you to see that in humility you have to enter a relationship with him and continue that relationship with him. You submit and you surrender to him. And then third, the third step of humility is you serve him. You live for him every day. You serve him some way. Humility leads to obedience and service. You see, it's, it's natural for us to think of ourselves first. My four-year-old granddaughter doesn't need to be told me <laughs> or mine. She says that by herself. This is mine. She doesn't want to share it with her one-and-a-half-year-old brother. We're selfish by nature, but the reality is when we humble ourselves as the example of Jesus Christ and he comes to live within us and he changes our heart and our life, then we become servants. And it's not us first. We're not as worried about personal position. I mean, again, Jesus 
We see it in his example in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to what? Serve and give his life as a ransom for me. God has called us to submit, to surrender, and then to serve him. Why would we do this? Because he wants us to be a light in a dark world. If you were to drop down to verse 15 in the same passage, it says, live clean, innocent lives as children of God. Listen to this. Shining like bright lights in a world full of crooked and perverse people. I know that Sao Paulo is just like Tucson, Arizona, and there are lots of crooked and perverse people. And you and I, who have the light of Christ in our lives, we're called to shine brightly for him. But you've got to be submitted, surrendered, so that you can serve. Where are you today in that? Have you submitted your life to him? Have you surrendered your life to him? And if so, how are you serving him in this dark world? Will you pray with me as we begin to turn our hearts towards the communion time and transition to that? And I would ask you, you think about that again. Where are you in relationship to Jesus Christ? Lord, I thank you and I praise you for your holy word, for your powerful word today, reminding us of who you are and what you've done for us. Lord, I pray for anyone in this room who may never have entered into that personal relationship with you, that even right now, they would offer up a prayer to you, that this would be their day of salvation, that things would change for them today. And for those of us who say we are yours and we surrender to you, may we evaluate how we're living and how we're serving. Lord, we pray this in your name. Amen.